Welcome, everybody. Um, as Steve says, my day job is running an MSc in the School of Geography. And then when I find some extra space, I get involved in some research. Um, these largely sort of focus on two areas. One is water ecosystems and human development, and the other is rural water supply. Neither of which is city-focused, but if you deal with these sort of issues of water ecosystems and rural water supply, inevitably you have connections and understandings of the, the urban landscape. Um, I've been involved um, with Steve's work in sort of developing the Future of Cities program, and I think it's a great initiative, and it's you know, something that should be done more of in Oxford in terms of trying to link the points of light that exist here in terms of excellence around different disciplines which Oxford historically is not particularly good at doing. Um, within water, we're looking to do a similar initiative around water security, and we're hoping to get Steve's talents involved in that. But today, I'm going to talk about a frog and um, water services as a sort of entree into the subject. So um, the screen's been a little bit reduced here, so hopefully it comes up um, well. Um, but it's a fable of a paralysed frog to sort of introduce what we're going to be talking about. So we have our frog, and the frog is basically us. We live in urban areas um, and cities and enjoy the environment. This is a pot of very hot boiling water. If the frog goes into the pot, the frog jumps out because he doesn't like it in there. It's too hot, it's uncomfortable, the frog knows it's going to perish. But alternatively, we have another pot, which is cool water. There's not too many other frogs in there. It's a nice environment. The pot doesn't leak any water. The frog's actually quite comfortable in it, enjoys it in there. But unbeknownst to the frog, there's a little fire below, and the pot is slowly heating. And this is an analogy for what's happening with water services all around the world. People are not really aware of what's going on. If they were aware, if you sort of moved into the situation um, at this present moment in time, people would understand there are sort of huge problems that we face. But a number of people think we're in this sort of situation that we're slowly cooking, and we hopefully the poor frog doesn't end up um, dead at the end of it. So we're just going to use this as a point of departure to look at some aspects of urban water delivery. A lot of this is sort of headline information in terms of the nature of water infrastructure, where we are now, some of the problems we face in terms of investment, competitive to vans, revenue streams, um, and variability of water resources in particular. There's also a political economy of these matters as well. Water is often described as a social good, an economic good, and as much a political good as well. And this creates some difficulties when you're trying to manage water resources. There's lots of technical expertise, there's lots of policymakers who understand the bigger picture, but actually trying to implement and make a change is extremely difficult. And again, with the Future of Cities program, I think we're trying to explore some of these ideas to find pathways in which we can go forward. So today I'm going to look at um, a couple of aspects in terms of financial innovations and also institutional reform. Some ideas that I think are coming up that are either emerging or have already some tractability and there is issues of scale um, to, those, to those developments. Um, in the press, I mean, it's difficult to avoid water now. It comes up in terms of the scientific press. It's commonly described as a water crisis, which often I think is an over-exaggeration, but it makes good headlines. 
Um, the economic, the business community are very interested. The Economist is running more and more articles, more and more special issues on water. And also for the development community, the UNDB report from 2006 on Beyond Scarcity was a clarion call in terms of the issues of both water supply and sanitation and the implications it has on human development. And latterly, more in terms of um, human security issues, in terms of how that maps through. In 2005, we also had a major global initiative around the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment where you had over 1,000 scientists from around the world looking at the state of individual ecosystems. And the findings were quite bleak in terms of both water but also forest systems, grassland systems, etc. But these constellations are coming together and what it's telling us is there are major issues at the fore which are coming to you know, a tipping point to some degree in terms of how we move forward. I think there are a lot of solutions, there are a lot of ideas, and you know, I want to discuss a few of them today. So in terms of cities, um, just for my information more than probably anybody else's, just getting a background of where we are in terms of the 1950s, it's a very rural landscape globally. I mean, this is a selection of countries from the United Nations Population Division. Then as we move to 2009, we can see the world is becoming more and more urbanised. But the two highlighted countries in yellow, if you can spot them, um, India and China, are still largely rural. If we cast forward to 2050, it's an urbanised planet, according to the, the projections. We've already moved to that point in terms of there's more urban residents now than rural residents, but the trend is it's going to move in that direction. And this has sort of important implications for water services. How are we going to be able to supply and deliver water services to these growing populations? Um, so the largest project at the moment, the Millennium Development Goals, are looking um, to reduce by 50% from the level of 1990 those people without access to water by 2015. Those unfamiliar with them, it's a very... Um, labyrinthine use of language, but basically trying to reduce by 50% those who didn't have access in 1990. Globally, we're on track. We should hit it um, by 2015. But as ever, the distributional implications um, aren't that good, particularly if you live in sub-Saharan Africa and parts of Asia. They are lagging behind, particularly in, in sub-Saharan Africa. In terms of the trends and how they're mapping through, India and China are basically um, providing the lion's share of gain in terms of connecting more and more people at a global level. So this is rural and urban. Um, in terms of how this works through, um, the joint monitoring program that look at these definitions have their criteria. And as always with criteria and definitions, there's a lot of debate within the community about them. Improved water is considered pipe water um, into the yard or into the dwelling, a public tap um, or standpipe, tube well or borehole, and then protected dug well or protected spring, so it has a concrete apron and it's covered and protected um, at source, or rainwater collection, which I'll talk about in a second. And then you've got a list of unimproved sources, which includes tanker water and, and bottled water. Um, there is a lot of debate about bottled water in terms as a mechanism um, which can be 
um, anti-poor in a way in terms of distributional implications for poorer members of society. How can they afford to get sufficient water? Is bottled water um, economically and also socially and environmentally a sensible way of giving access to water um, to people? Tanker water, I think, is interesting as well because in many large urban areas, tanker water is provided from municipal supply and if it's regulated, and the emphasis on regulation here, it's often a sort of quite a neat solution to get water into more, um, into more communities at a faster pace. But currently, that's not part of the mix here. Um, if the technology will work with me, I'm going to show you a short, a very short um, little promo on rainwater harvesting. I'm afraid the sound isn't very good because it's not connected. So CSE, for those who may not be familiar with the Centre for Science and the Environment, which is a new Delhi-based environmental NGO, a very good NGO, Sunita Narain, who directs the Institute, won the Stockholm Water Prize a couple of years ago. And um, there's a serious point to it. It's a nice, good-feel film. But in many places, in particular in Delhi, a lot of people move to self-supply. They move to rainwater harvesting systems because municipal systems don't reach them or don't reach them in a, in a sustainable way. So it can be that there's not a reliability of supply. They get water for one or two hours a day. Um, it's often not of good quality. There's very low pressure. There's no certainty of when that water will arrive. So you know you might get one or two hours, but you don't know which one or two hours of the day it's going to be there. So there are various costs associated with that. As a consequence, what people do, they move to a self-supply situation or try and implement a suite of water collection um, approaches and that can include buying water, tanker water, bottled water, rainwater harvesting systems or using groundwater systems. One of the problems in country or cities like Delhi and many parts of the world is the groundwater resource is becoming heavily polluted and the Yamuna River that flows through Delhi is basically an open sewer and that exists in many parts of large mega cities around the world. So this self-supply situation is creating human health implications along with it. And you're in a spiral um, with municipal water supplies as people no longer trust the service that they're being given, they move away 
from municipals, they have less faith and confidence in that. And that reduces the revenue base of the water supply companies and you end up in a vicious circle, basically a paralysis of how to move forward. Now there are some, you know, it's a rather bleak story to some degree and a simplification of things, but there are positive things that are going on in India that I'll talk about in a minute and um, to take us forward. Um, in terms of sort of going from the global picture to sort of breaking it down between urban and rural areas, um, the vast majority, the vast proportion of people without secure water access live in rural areas. It's 84% at the moment, which is partly one of the reasons I work more in the rural sector. Um, but within that, because of population growth, urban areas are struggling to meet the growth year on year. So if you go back to 1990 and look at the figures in terms of what was needed at that time, the level of people, the number of people that have been given access to improve water services over the last um, 20 years is sufficient to give 100% coverage. But of course, the demographic change, and Sarah Harper is no doubt going to talk about this in more detail with more expertise than I can, there has been a problem of basically trying to play catch up all the time with demographic change. And then if you look at sort of um, the type of access that people have, it's predominantly more pipe water access in urban areas. But you can, just because you've got a tap doesn't mean you've got a water supply. And often in these urban areas, there's insufficient water in that. So you've got a tap, but there's no water flowing in that system. So a lot of these JMP figures, they're useful as a sort of benchmark around the world. But there's lots of nuances in that in terms of um, the quality, the reliability, the cost of these services that exist. And this is why urban water services is very much a significant ongoing policy issue. If we, um, I'm not sure how many people come from a sort of natural science, hydrological background. I know we've got one climate scientist in the room. Um, but just um, very quickly, um, an understanding of the hydrological cycle described in this terminology, green and blue water, which is sometimes helpful um, for non-hydrologists to um, have an understanding of the total water resource that's available. Green water, I mean, the concept came about from Malin Falkenmark, who's a Swedish hydrologist, and she used it in the late 80s, 1990s, basically through frustration of people not understanding how water is partitioned in the landscape and what options exist in terms of water management. Green water can be considered soil moisture, as sort of said here, um, the water that's captured in the land. And then blue water is, you know, the water that often people associate how much water is available. The point that um, Professor Falkenmark was trying to make, that your land use has a great implication on water resources. So a land use decision is effectively a water resource decision. If you plant more trees, they evaporate and transpire water, and that makes less resource available. So there are options and understandings in terms of how you manage your whole resource. The other point of showing this is in terms of how much water of the total cities and industries actually use. It's an absolute fraction. It's a very, very minor proportion of the water. So often commentators will see it not as a, as a water quantity issue, a resource issue. It's more of a sort of institutional, economic or political issue that you're facing. There is sufficient water to provide it to the cities, but there's also geographic variability in terms of getting it to the cities in the right, at the right time and in the right quantities, managing that water, storing it, diverting it. Is that? Okay. I'm happy taking questions if anybody wants to say. 
So one of the, one of the projects I'm working on at the moment is to do um, with water transfers from, um, I'll show you the map and return to this, from um, here in northern India in Himachal Pradesh, um, the building of a dam, the Renuka Dam, which is to supply one million cubic meters of water a day to New Delhi to increase their supply of water. So it's, it's quite, it's not an unusual project. I wouldn't say it's necessarily a very large project, but it's an ongoing project at the moment that I'm, um, with Cambridge University, we're sort of looking at the sort of negotiation of trade-offs in this process. Um, what you can see in terms of the text, I mean, this is just a couple of day, days ago from the Hindu, is New Delhi being described as a parasite. A parasite in terms of its water footprint is getting larger and larger. As Delhi, which is 14, 15 million people now, gets larger and its demand for water increases, the supply is insufficient within the urban landscape, and it has been for a long time. So the tentacles of the city extend out. And so you have a, a very much um, a continuum. It's not an urban-rural divide. It's a continuum between the two areas, and you're getting more and more the case that the rural areas are supplying water to the cities, and there's a lot of contestation about that. There's a lot of power relations that go on in terms of how this is done. So you have the states of Haryana, Himachal Pradesh, and Rajasthan involved in negotiating the water that will be captured in the Renuka Dam, fed into a diversion pipe, and then into the Yumuna River that will then serve Delhi. And the arguments here on the left-hand side is that Delhi needs the water. It's growing. You know, it's a major city, one of the biggest cities in the world. They need to have the water available for development and growth. And then possibly from the upstream side of the equation, that you know, Delhi doesn't manage its water particularly well. 45% is lost in distribution networks, and Delhi is basically being a parasite, taking water that it doesn't really need to take um, for the city. Now, this, this um, here we go. This type of approach, I mean, can be framed within you know the ideas of market environmentalism and the sort of hydropolitical geographies that are emerging around the world, partly through the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, which has talked about increasing scarcity and com competition and variability of resources and how we can sort of manage our way around this. One of the poster childs of this type of, of this situation is the Aral Sea here and how it's been um, reduced significantly, partly through increased cotton production in upstream states over a number of years. And the approach of market environmentalism, which I'm sure is talked about quite a bit at the business school, is something that's um, gained a lot of traction within the environmental community and the water community in terms of does this offer us a solution, um, another mechanism along with government and regulation of business and enterprise getting involved in managing water more effectively. A lot of people are very critical about this and they sort of say it's paradoxical. How can you give us a market solution to a problem that's been created by the market? You know, it's a sort of post-Marxist critique of the approach. Um, is it a panacea where government has failed? Will business succeed? Is it as simple as that? Um, and then the promise from the sort of economics perspective, it's internalizing externalities. If we can understand the costs associated with managing water um, poorly or weakly, can, can the market mechanism find a way of pricing water, valuing water more effectively to sort of close the circle? And then there's the, pr the prospect in terms of distributional impacts. How is this going to work across different sectors within society? Is everybody going to be impacted 
in a sort of an even and fair way. And obviously when you bring in the word fairness and equality, um, Liberal Democrats might be very happy. Other people might sort of say, well, how are you going to actually operationalize that context? But regardless of the sort of the contextual, theoretical, or the economic principles that underline this approach, it's taking a wide hold, and there's a number of projects around the world which, um, I mean, I've just listed a couple of them here in terms of government. You've got the New York um, Delaware Catskill scheme, which um, they, the, the New York um, metropolitan area, rather than investing $6 billion in a new water filtration plant, have invested in improving the upland management of the Delaware and Catskill um, watershed, which provides water that flows into New York. And the argument is making those investments is actually cheaper than investing in technology, and it preserves the environment. Um, that's been done with a fair degree of success, even though now they think there's a turbidity problem that they may have to build the filtration plant anyway. But they see it as a model. We should be exploring these issues rather than technology is always the answer. Can we explore other alternatives? Costa Rica and Mexico have got national level payment for environmental services schemes which include water. Um, so I've worked on one of those schemes in um, central Costa Rica. Um, South Africa have had a scheme that's been running for a long time, the Working for Water program, which um, sees forestry, particularly in semi-arid environments, as a water-using invasive species, particularly pines, non-local species that are planted, and they're taxed. And there is a scheme that pays um, rural, generally poorer residents to remove the species, um, and it's been framed now as a, a payment or a market environmental approach that there is a sort of contextual arrangement between environmental and social goals coinciding. In China, there's examples, and I'll talk about that in a second, but also in terms of business. Business have been getting involved in this um, with Nestle, with Vitel, which is um, sourced in northeast France, and it's um, groundwater. It's a very pure groundwater that they pump for Vitel, but it's in an area of quite intense farming with lots of agricultural organic pollutants getting into the groundwater supply. Vitel have brokered an agreement with the French farmers for them to change their land use practices to prevent or reduce the impact on the groundwater resource. And there again has been seen to be a compatibility between the business interests and the environmental interests. Um, Rio Tinto are involved in this in various ways and forms and there's sort of biodiversity schemes um, such as Campfire which is the Communal Areas Management Programme for Indigenous Resources which effectively is looking at savanna landscapes um, it's a bit of a mouthful. Savannah landscapes where elephants and people are in contestation. People want to live and the elephants can destroy their habitat and their crops. But if the people get a share of revenue from tourism, do the, can you sort of align the interests and the incentives? And this is what it's fundamentally about, aligning different interests and incentives. And can you think creatively a ways around this? So there's more and more of examples of these coming to the fore as we go forward. Basically, through our issues of water variability, water scarcity, and water competition around the world. Okay, this is, um, what am I doing for time? These are some of the um, approaches in China, um, partly driven by drought and floods. Um, they've got two major schemes, the Natural Forestry Conservation Program and the Grain to Green Program. And these are largely afforestation planting forests 
which they see as reducing um, sedimentation and increasing runoff to some degree. And you're looking at millions and millions of hectares of forest land being planted all across China as part of an in um, initiative here. This is, you know, by far and away the largest global scheme of its type. And part of it is to manage water for cities. It is linked in to that. Um, one scheme I've worked on in India is in Bhopal in Madhya Pradesh in central India. And here you've got um, two lakes which are Ramsar sites which provide 40% of the water for the city of Bhopal, which is a population of 2 million people, and many people will know through the Union Carbide disaster in 1984. Um, we were looking at sort of incentives for farmers to shift to organic farming to reduce pesticides and um, pollutant runoff into the lake to reduce the costs of treating the water. Um, And then, I think, an emerging phenomenon which people are only suddenly starting to get to grips with now is groundwater abstraction. Again, I'm sort of drawing upon India. Um, there's been high levels of what's called competitive groundwater abstraction, largely for farming, for irrigated farming in the northwest of the country in Gujarat. And you can see that they're abstracting beyond the natural recharge rate. So they're mining water. They're taking water that's historical, sometimes called fossil water, out of the system. It's not a renewable resource. It's not like rainfall that will return. This was water that fell thousands of years ago. And it's now not just for irrigation, but farmers are finding it's more economically viable to sell their water and give it to tankers that go into the city at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning every day. And you're seeing that sort of linkage emerging as well, which is worrying. Um, Backcasting to sort of bring in sort of part of the story on finance. This is a famous pump in London, the Broad Street Pump. And in 1854 in London, there was a major cholera outbreak. Um, around this pump, um, Dr. Snow sort of developed this germ theory of disease that, you know, there were waterborne diseases carried through water. Previously, it was sort of associated with miasma, that it was in the environment itself. It wasn't actually carried in the water. And this led on to sort of major advances in scientific understanding. Um, Koch got the Nobel Prize for his advances in microbiology at the early part of the 20th century. And it brought in the whole idea of um, the nature, the germ theory of disease. And it's all around this pump which was um, used water abstracted from the Thames, which at the time was pretty much an open sewer, so it was not too surprising that people were getting sick. But that was a major breakthrough, a scientific breakthrough, that then led through this technological pathway to where we are now, to some degree, <laughs> of providing a good quality and quantity of water to the, to the dwelling. And it's you know, something that Steve will talk about, no doubt, the, you know, the, sort of the sense in which for consuming five litres or drinking five litres of water, that you have infrastructure providing this sort of, you know, over-engineered solution to the water that we need. But this infrastructure in the UK and beyond is effectively creaking and leaking. By the way, you neglected to mention that John Snow actually stole the handle off the pump. Did he? To, uh, try to prevent the... Uh, okay, I didn't uh, know that. The infection. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Good practical solution. Um, so numbers, if you want numbers on this, this is a report by, you can't see it because it's been squidged, um, Booz Allen Hamilton, 2007. So they were sort of saying 
25-year forecasting, what's it going to cost to upgrade global infrastructure? What do we need to spend? They came up with the, the dizzying figure of 41 trillion US dollars, would you believe? And of that, 22 trillion dollars were to be allocated to upgrading water infrastructure. So it's just a vast, vast cost. Um, that needs using today's technologies without any advances? Like, today, like building systems like they look like today? I would imagine so. I don't know the exact methodology, but I can give you the, the reports. But this is what they were estimating going forward. I don't know what, to what extent they sort of said there would be technological development within that, but it's a, it's a good point. But it's, it's just a headline figure in terms of, you know, this is what an estimate is. There are others which are a bit lower, but, you know, ballpark, it's a lot of money. In terms of government investment, um, these are just a selection of countries, often sort of um, developing world countries, in terms of what proportion of GDP they're currently spending on water. And you'll see that it's, you know, it's understandably, to some degree, a low amount. But this is internal investment. You have countries like Mozambique, which relies quite significantly on international de development assistance, 80, 90% of its water services budget comes from the international community. So, you know, you've got to be careful with, uh, with these figures to some degree, but one or two percent is sort of ballpark for what people are investing, which raises the issue, you know, you know how are we going to finance um, domestic water services going forward? Um, there's been, a lot, there's been various studies in OECD countries looking at these sort of issues and promoting you know, volumetric charges um, to many residents around Europe that just basically play a, a fixed flat tariff for the water they use. It's not metered, it's not understood how much they're consuming, so they, they play a flat, flat monthly tariff. And they're arguing, as many people are, to move to volumetric tariffs, and this in itself can reduce household consumption by 25%. That figure to me is quite high. There are others that are in the range of maybe 5 to 15%, but they're saying by bringing in this technology, you will reduce consumption. It also sort of increases the probability of water-saving behaviour if you br bring in educational mechanisms as well. Will people use um, dual t flush toilets, you know, shower for less time, not use power showers, and all of those things that we already know about? And also, will it reinforce environmental attitudes to saving water as well. What you can see in terms of the water bills around um, you know, the OECD countries, it is a fraction of income. It's often sort of 1% or less of annual income what people are spending. So there are arguments, is water too cheap? Back into sort of you know, a developing landscape, there are structural inequalities for how people access water. So the top row here um, gives you an indication of the cost of connection as percentage of annual income um, in a, a variety of countries. And you can see you know, the, the average figure is around 37%, so a third or more of income to get a connection to your household. So it's quite, it's quite high, and particularly for poorer deciles, it's obviously significantly higher than that. And then um, in terms of the how much more you pay if you get public kiosk water, so water supply outside of your home, than if you have a connection. Again, it's reinforcing the economic divide between the rich and the poor. Richer people are able to afford a connection to their household. Poorer people end up having to pay more per unit of water and consume less water as a consequence than wealthier people. And these are some of the perennial challenges that people face um, in terms of thinking through 
um, water supply. And there are sort of easy solutions to this to some degree, um, such as um, you know, creating business opportunities around water that you don't have one unique monopoly in terms of water supply. This is um, work done by GTZ, which is the German development agency that's been do doing some very good work um, in Zambia that's been translated now through to Kenya and um, Tanzania as well, of using public kiosks. So it's supplied by the municipality, it's regulated, um, it's metered the water, and they have you know, tariff settings so people are aware of how much the water is being priced at. It's been very successful in terms of reaching low-income groups, and they've managed to sort of, you know, cost the water at sort of at a reasonably economic level. So the cost per cubic meter of water of here is around um, half a euro, half a US dollar more or less, which if, for kiosk water in many places, you're looking at a dollar and a half, two dollars plus in many cases. However, the consumption side is quite low. It's 20 litres per person per day, 20 litres per capita per day. In terms of UN guidelines on how much water people need, it would be between 20 and 50. So you can sort of see this as a basic supply level. There's, no, there's not a lot of flexibility there. And a lot of studies sort of you know, describe you know, a sort of declining curve. The further away, the, the distance away, there'll be a decline in terms of carrying water. And I don't know how many people in this room have tried carrying 20 litres on their head, but it's, water is heavy. It's very difficult to do. But this, this is one of the innovations, and within this, people look at tankers as another alternative, having multiple supply routes, but having them regulated in an effective, efficient, transparent, and objective manner, separate to government policy. And we have in this country, Ofwat um, and the Drinking Water Inspectorate that pro provide regulatory frameworks for us. And those sort of models are being sort of applied through with some success in getting more water to people, particularly in very dense urban environments. And then finally, um, looking at 24-7, um, I don't know whether people are familiar with this. I mean, I think this is, one of, is going to be potentially one of the success stories around urban water supply in the next decade. It's a system that was tried in Delhi, and Delhi kicked it out. There was a lot of NGO resistance to the idea of 24-7, and the concept is simple. You provide water 24 hours a day, seven days a week of good quality, of high pressure at a reasonable cost. People said it wouldn't work, it's too ambitious, um, it's just not economically, socially, politically conceivable we can get this to work. And there was a political furore around this in Delhi, and because of a contracting procurement issue, which was the World Bank's fault, they um, got caught out, it got kicked out. They went south into Karnataka, which is one of the southern states, and they've tried it again here in three smaller cities. And there's a report that will be coming out from the World Bank in the next month, and it seems to have um, achieved great success in increasing the level of coverage. So more people are getting a household connection of water at a lower cost, with lower water consumption being used. So it's almost like the holy grail of water supply. Can you get more people connected at lower costs, increase your revenues, but people are paying less for that water? And it's partly through by increasing the revenue base, providing them with the service that they require and demand. So this gives um, a presentation by the World Bank um, earlier this year. So it's gone from the situation before you get, you've got the standard approach of very unreliable supply to 24-7, 
the volume of water supply has gone down. They're actually providing less water than they were previously, partly because of this, because of leakage, wastage, unaccounted for water. <coughs> UFW is what water engineers call it. It's gone down considerably. They've invested in the infrastructure. So they've basically brought in new piping infrastructure, new meters. They've basically upgraded the system wholesale to achieve this. Um, there's a higher level of pressure. Um, there's no public fountains. It's all individual connections. Um, there's now 100% metering. Um, there's much better billing and tariff systems have been put into place. Um, there's a turnaround in terms of customer complaints and issues that have invested in that. And they're collecting far more of the billing as well, which again is absolutely fundamental for ensuring the revenue base. And they've got um, customer service in place. Now these are pilot projects, but I mean one of my colleagues, Michael Rouse, has been involved in this for a number of years. And the indications are that this is working. And this could be potentially very big news if this is transferable around the world. Um, po the population, I think, is here. So it's 180,000 people. Mm -hmm. and, the uh, and the volume, I don't know. 18.24 million. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah. There you go. And I think we'll make this available on your website. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So we'll put it up. And then, sort of, I suppose, finally, I mean, just talking about the UK water industry, I can't resist this, to be honest. If you look at what's going on here in Karnataka and you look in the UK where we have metering tossering around 30%, ideas of moving things forward and there are examples from Jersey and that gentleman over there will be able to tell you a lot about Jersey metering if you want to talk to him. There's high water losses, 25% is lost which works out to be 20 litres per capita a day. So if you think back to Zambia, that's what the average Zambian is using and we're wasting it to some degree. Um, tariffs by this sort of outdated house price mechanism that we have in the UK, um, generally flat with no peak or seasonal element. There's this five-year planning focus that we have in the UK. Customer orientation, the water companies must satisfy what the consumers want, which I think is, is a good thing to some degree, but also questionable in some areas. And then this idea that it's a sort of, you know, it's a competitive environment, um, how that works. And then one of the, the worrying issues is the increasing debt within the water sector, partly around or can be attributed to um, the 1990 Act, which prevented disconnection. So if you compare debt in the water industry of £1.2 billion um, pounds compared with the gas and electricity sectors, about a sixth of that, you can see you can be disconnected from your gas electricity if you don't pay. For water, you can't be disconnected. Now, whether those two things, there's causality or association there, nobody's done the study, to my knowledge, to actually demonstrate that. But you can probably say there's some level of attribution to this. Okay, and to conclude, um, back to our little friend the frog. Um, I mean, I would argue, as you might say I would, um, that a sustainable city is premised on a secure water supply. It's absolutely fundamental that that is part of the thinking and planning process. And then from um, a colleague of mine who's recently joined, Oxford David Gray, I mean, we're looking around issues of water security. An urban water supply would be something that would fit in this framework of providing acceptable quantity and quality of water for health, livelihoods, ecosystems, production, at an affordable cost 
coupled with an acceptable level of water-rated risks to people, environments, and economies. So this is a working definition of water security that works for water services and water resources across scarcity and flooding issues as well. Um, and then the whole decision-making process, how has Kanataka got to the point they've managed to implement it? I know there's one individual at the World Bank has driven this process, been, um, been driven over the last decade to try and make this happen. But there are powerful interests and inherent status quo of not shifting the change. The changes in Kanataka, which generally are considered to be very much for the good, were resisted by, by one group in Kanataka particularly, those with these existing high levels of supply at very low cost, who tend to be the most politically influential, a high proportion of them to a certain degree. And then I'm not sure this is going to appear. Um, I mean, I would say here that there are transformative opportunities related through technological innovation, appropriate investments, a coherent geography of water. What have we got down here? and a sort of new institutional water architecture. You've got to rethink about the institutional architecture of water. And I think we're just continuing to go forward with the same thinking. There are very transformative ideas out there, but how do we sort of think those through, provide empirical evidence, and get them translated more widely? And I think that's one of the challenges, and I'm hoping Steve's program will sort of help us in that direction to some degree. So thank you very much. Thank you.